early in the morning of June 17, 2016, an unknown person or group began systematically draining millions of dollars worth of a virtual currency called Ether from an autonomous organization known simply as the DAO. While security researchers scrambled to respond to prevent additional funds from being stolen, others watched along as the hacker continued exploiting the smart contract. In a strange and unprecedented turn of events, however, the thief would be forced to wait three weeks before they could take full ownership of the coins, giving researchers a limited opportunity to hunt for a solution. Unfortunately, there was not an easy solution to be had. My name is Zach Wolf, and this is Into the Abyss. first episode, we're going to be exploring the fascinating story of the rise of the Dow. This is the story of how two German brothers and their business partner turned an innovative plan to connect the blockchain to the physical world into the largest crowdfunded project of all time. In the second part of this two-part series, we're going to meticulously explore the fall of the Dow. From the hack that drained millions of dollars of crowdfunded crypto to the timely and contentious decision to fork the blockchain in an attempt to nullify the attack. While the story in and of itself is wildly fascinating, like so many others in the crypto space, the details are often murky or misreported. For this reason, it seemed like a fitting place to kick off into the abyss. To really understand this story, I think it makes sense to start at the beginning. Not just the beginning of Slock, the company that got hacked, but the beginning of Ethereum, the platform that Slock was built to run on. Now, I realize that some of you are probably already familiar with Ethereum, but I'm going to take a few minutes and set the stage by talking about what Ethereum is anyway. If you're already in the know, sit tight or jump forward a few minutes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Ethereum but I do think a basic understanding of what Ethereum is and what it was like in those early days is an important bit of context for understanding this story. In 2011, a 17-year-old Russian-Canadian programmer named Vitalik Butrin, passionate about emerging blockchain technology, co-founded a website called Bitcoin Magazine. The website was designed to provide analysis, research, education, and thought leadership on topics at the intersection of finance and technology. Back then, as the site name eludes, it was mostly about Bitcoin. As Vitalik became more immersed in Bitcoin and blockchain, one of the key technologies behind Bitcoin, he developed some keen insights and ideas that would pave the way for a new and different kind of blockchain. A true visionary, Vitalik sought ways to improve the young and mostly fringe Bitcoin technology. One such observation was around which problems Bitcoin could tackle or solve. Here's Vitalik talking with The Economist in 2016 about what inspired him to create Ethereum. I thought that they weren't approaching the problem in the right way. I thought they you were kind of going after individual applications. They were trying to sort of explicitly support each one in a kind of Swiss Army knife protocol. Whereas Bitcoin had pioneered a new and innovative way to send and receive digital money, 
Vitalik reasoned that the technology could be reworked and applied to a theoretical infinite number of use cases. In addition to storing transaction records on the blockchain, why not also allow applications themselves to run on the blockchain? And I uh, thought that uh, there was a better way, which was that you have a programming language or a similar programming language to the kind that you might have, you know, an Android that all the apps are written in. And the idea is that instead of creating a device that just does a specific number of things, you have a device that understands and supports this programming language and whatever people want to do. Fascinated by the open, permissionless nature of blockchains, he expands more on his vision. I like the idea of sort of 12-year-olds potentially being able to build the next financial system and so forth. Before we move ahead, I want to take a quick minute to make sure that we're all on the same page. For now, there are a couple of key concepts that I really want you to have. Let's start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer digital currency. In its most simple form, it's digital money that can be sent and received without the need for a trusted third party like a bank or Western Union. It was founded in 2009 by an unknown person or group using the handle of Satoshi Nakamoto. The blockchain is a key element of Bitcoin and can be thought of as a distributed database that maintains a continuously growing list of ordered records called blocks. If that didn't make sense, another even more generic way to describe it is a public cloud ledger. Others have described it as the world's most inefficient database. And of course, that last bit is mostly a joke, but it is true that the computing power required to maintain integrity and security of the blockchain is quite massive. Either way, building off insights and ideas about what blockchain could be In late 2013, Vitalik compiled his ideas and released a white paper proposing Ethereum. While the underlying code, algorithms, and game theory behind the project are not so easy to wrap your head around, the basic idea for Ethereum isn't overly complex, a blockchain that can run programs. On their website, Ethereum describes their project from a higher level in more grand terms. Ethereum is the foundation for a new era of the internet, an internet where money and payments are built in, where users can own their own data and apps don't steal from you, an internet where everyone has access to an open financial system, an internet built on neutral, open access infrastructure controlled by no company or person. Ethereum is a global open source platform for decentralized applications, end quote. Okay, so to recap, Bitcoin was founded in 2009 by a mysterious person or group known as Satoshi Nakamoto. While not the first attempt at a decentralized digital currency, thanks to an innovative new element, it has become far and away the most successful. An early Bitcoin adopter, Canadian-Russian programmer Vitalik Buterin, released a white paper in late 2013 expanding on the potential for the technology with his vision of running applications on the blockchain. This project becomes known as Ethereum, and Ether is the virtual or cryptocurrency that powers the system. The billion-dollar question that emerged amidst an inordinate amount of hype and speculation is what could be built on such a platform, and perhaps more importantly, what would people actually use it for? 
Ethereum went live on July 30th, 2015. And in those early days, there was an immense excitement around the potential for a platform that allowed decentralized programs to run on the blockchain. Early on, there were some basic games, pyramid contracts, and a host of relatively simple applications to play with. As one might expect, these applications weren't heavily used right away. At the same time, being so new and radical, the platform was a bit cumbersome, buggy, and difficult to program. Either way, it didn't take long for more ambitious and complex applications to emerge. One such project was dreamed up by a couple of German brothers, Simon and Christoph Jentsch. At its core, the idea itself was relatively simple. They saw value in connecting the Ethereum blockchain to real-life physical objects. They, pro they called the project SLOCK as the initial use case was connecting smart locks to the blockchain. The young and rapidly growing Ethereum community embraced the project, and the brothers moved forward at a breakneck pace. In the spring of 2015, Christoph and his brother Simon began working on a prototype for smart locks connected to the Ethereum blockchain. These locks would use smart contracts to handle access control permissions. Here's Christoph at the Ethereum Developers Conference in London in November of 2015 explaining what they were building. So what is the problem we are trying to solve? So most of you have a lot of property. Think about your house, your car, your washing machine, your lawnmower, your bike, and a lot of different other things. But you use them only if, like 5% of the time. Most of the time they're just sitting around there and don't do anything. So now the problem comes, how could you rent, sell, or share them easily? And that's basically the problem we are trying to solve. The first prototype was presented on June 30th at the BitDev's NYC meetup in Manhattan. The team was excited with their progress and had already begun looking beyond smart locks. They envisioned a decentralized sharing economy, or a universal sharing network, as they call it, in which all types of smart devices could be securely connected to the blockchain. From electric car charging stations to smart cameras and beyond, here's Christoph a few years later at DevCon 3 talking about the universal sharing network. So if you know that the number of connected devices is growing and growing, you have smart locks, you have smart plugs, and a lot of other devices. And we want to control the access to them via a smart contract, which can be a payment, can be another um, logic. To execute on this ambitious plan, the Slack team was going to need some funding. Rather than explore one of the more common means of funding, like venture capital or even a centralized crowdfunding platform like Kickstarter, they doubled down on the decentralization ethos and coded up a simple crowdfunding contract on Ethereum. Essentially, this would allow them to take crowdfunded investments for Slock directly on the blockchain in the form of Ether. The logic here is pretty simple. If they were going to pioneer an application that connected the blockchain to real-world real physical items, why not also leverage a decentralized funding mechanism as well? For some people, though, it might be a bit hard to understand and explain the team's next moves in that same sort of way. As if the current roadmap and framework for funding wasn't ambitious enough, they continued to take it further and further. Why stop with a simple crowdfunding contract? Why not give the investors more power? Why limit them to simply holding shares or tokens in Slock? 
perhaps enticed by the potential of a new decentralized frontier, the crowdfunding contract took a truly ambitious turn. According to Christoph, this is where the story of the DAO begins. In the beginning, the SLOC-specific smart contract gave token holders voting power and some control over what they should do with the funds received. Soon, that too, though, evolved, and after further consideration, token holders were given more power. Ultimately, full control over the funds was given to the token holders, which would be released only after a successful vote on detailed proposals backed by smart contracts. So as a company, Slock's direction would be guided entirely by token holders. While there are a number of practical questions that arise with this type of company structure, and we're going to talk more about those in a bit, because these rules are published publicly on a blockchain for anyone to see, the transparency of the company rules should at the very least give token holders the ability to understand what they're signing up for and if they want to participate. The trick to this is most folks at this point still don't have the ability to audit and read these smart contracts. Either way, at this point, the team found themselves already a few steps past the Kickstarter model, and in this model, Slock was the only potential recipient of the funds. I think it's easy to look back and arrive at the conclusion that the Slock team was taking on too much too fast. And while that probably is valid criticism, it's also important to consider the climate of things in those early days of Ethereum. There was an electric excitement in the air. Some did and still do believe that these technologies would be the foundation for a new internet. It would seem that similar questions have opened up at the edge of science and technology and other frontiers as well. Just because you can, does it mean you should? How far is too far in the quest for autonomy? While some entrepreneurs might have simply stayed focused on connecting smart locks to the Ethereum blockchain and set out to prove that use case out in the real world, the Slock team was swinging for the fences. Their project roadmap had already morphed into something more complex and audacious, but they weren't slowing down. The crowdfunding program written to run on Ethereum had evolved, had evolved into what they would later describe as a narrow Slock-specific DAO. The token holders or investors could direct and guide how the funds at Slock would be spent. On their quest for autonomy, they saw an opportunity to further expand. Christoph describes their thought process on this particular move in a blog post on the Slock site. Quote, We wanted to go even further and create a true DAO, one that would be the only and direct recipient of the funds and would represent the creation of an organization similar to a company with potentially thousands of founders, end quote. Before we go any further, I want to talk a little bit about what the heck a distributed autonomous organization actually is. Beyond its importance in the story, this is really fascinating stuff. Often called a DAO for short, it's a relatively new concept for structuring companies or organizations that was first introduced in 2013 by Daniel Lammer, a software programmer and cryptocurrency entrepreneur. Daniel is behind a number of powerhouse cryptocurrency projects, including BitShares and the Steam blockchain. 
In 2018, Forbes estimated Daniel's net worth to be between $600 and $700 million. Now, like many things in the cryptocurrency space, the concept of a DAO seems to be constantly evolving. One of the more recent renditions of the concept describes the DAO describes a DAO like this. The goal of a DAO is to codify the rules and decision-making apparatus of an organization, eliminating the need for documents and people in governing, creating a structure with decentralized control. Earlier versions of a DAO seem to be more focused around the financial elements of an organization. And indeed, it's a matter of debate in respect to which components are necessary or optimal. One example of a sticking point that you can see floating around out there is around management and leadership. Some believe that it's a pretty bad idea to simply cast away all leadership elements of an organization and let the wisdom of the crowd take control. Of course, a simple counterpoint would be that perhaps you don't abstract away all concepts of leadership to a DAO, but only some. Either way, it's safe to say that there's a lot of ambiguity around what a DAO actually is still. In the case of Slock, they decided to go full-on DAO, extreme DAO. With this next iteration, the Smart Lock product becomes just one idea from one company of many that the DAO token holders could choose to fund and work with. So, because things are starting to feel a little confusing, I want to point out that the Slock team's choice to call it the DAO is a bit like someone naming a company in the U.S. the LLC or the corporation. That said, this concept can be hard to wrap your head around. So, let's look at another definition of the DAO. A DAO can be thought of as an organization represented by rules encoded as, compu- encoded as a computer program that is transparent controlled by shareholders, and not influenced by a central government. So maybe we can say, for the sake of this story, that a DAO is a company or organization in which some combination of rules, bylaws, and financial transactions are established with code that live on the blockchain or some other secure immutable structure. Because the concept is still pretty new, it's no surprise that the legal status of such organizations is unknown in many places. So Slock is still a company, but they have developed and pushed out an application to the Ethereum blockchain that they called the DAO, a complex and audacious maneuver in their quest for autonomy. This organization, or smart contract, distributed application, or DAP, could accept proposals from any company. The token holders could then vote on which projects they wanted to fund. So why did the Slack team want to use such a structure over the existing methods? Christoph offers up one answer to this question on the Slack blog. Quote, One idea that we had was that we could eliminate human error or manipulation of investor funds by placing decision-making power into the hands of an automated system and crowdsourced process. End quote. So the DAO was designed to allow investors to send money from anywhere in the world and then provide those token owners voting rights, allowing them to vote on any number of possible projects. Christoph introduced the idea to the world at DevCom 1 in London in November of 2015. The first public commit to the Slock DAO 
code base was made on June 26, 2015. And it would be just under a year later that the full-blown DAO contract would be uploaded. One interesting property of public blockchains is that because they're immutable, we can actually go back and look at the full record of events. In this case, we can see that on Ethereum block number 1,428,757 was mined on April 30th, 2016. And with that block, the DAO contract was deployed to the Ethereum mainnet. Now, Christoph has said that he was hopeful the project could see upwards of $5 million worth of Ethereum in investments. What happened over the course of the next month was undoubtedly an exciting and terrifying experience for the team. Leading up to the morning of June 17th, when a hacker would begin systematically moving funds out of the Dow Spark contract, investors pumped roughly $150 million worth of Ether into the Dow, making it the largest crowdfunded project of all time to date. So I hope you're enjoying the story as I have had a great time putting it together. Indeed, it is a lot of work trying to get all these details straight and error free, but that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with Into the Abyss. Bring epic stories from the crypto and hacking underground to light in such a way that anyone can enjoy them. If you like what I'm doing, please do me a favor and share the show link around, subscribe with your favorite podcast app, or just give the show a like. At the same time, if you're feeling some criticism and feedback, send it my way. You know, I'd love to hear that as well. It'll probably take me some time to get things dialed in on this new show, and your feedback can definitely help me get things on track. Also, if you happen to know someone that might be interested in sponsoring, definitely reach out and let me know about them as well. Now, before I go, I'm also going to plug another podcast that I'm working on recently, kind of resurrected, brought back from the dead, so to speak. The show is called Smokescreen. You can find it on SoundCloud. In that show, I explore various technical mechanisms of disinformation. So sort of like reverse engineering information security style of disinformation campaigns, that sort of thing. In one recent episode, I'm looking into Donald Trump's fake followers using machine learning to understand what sort of uh, bots versus real and spam we've got there. Uh, Another one that I'm working on now, we're talking about some recent Reddit disinformation campaigns and how they actually, uh, some of the style links back to a 1980s disinformation campaign run by the KGB to convince the world population that the U.S. manufactured AIDS. So, Stick around, check that out if you like it, and um, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you next week on this next part two episode, The Fall of the Dow. <laughs>